may I share with you one of the uh, great movie scenes, one of the most popular movie scenes over the last 25 years. Check this out. We live in a cynical world. A cynical world. And we work in a business of tough competitors. You complete me. I'm not just. Has. Shut up. Just shut up. You had me at hello. You had me at hello. Anybody know what movie that's from? Jerry Maguire, right? Like, it's like the classic scene. I don't know if you remember, like, the first time you saw it and you were with your girlfriend and she was like, why can't you love me like that? <laughs> you, maybe I'm just putting my own baggage out there. You complete me, you had me at hello, the girlfriends all crying on the couch. It's a modern day wonderland of love. At least what we think love is, or what we think love is supposed to be, at least what we were taught maybe, or shown. I mean that scene, right, it's just, and, and love, right? It's supposed to be so moving and so beautiful, and it is. But the problem is, for most of us, that's not always or even usually true. It's not our own experience with love. In fact, can I tell you, this is the truth, it's not even Jerry Maguire's. Anybody know that, Jer do you know Jerry Maguire is based on a real character? Lee Steinberg, he was like the uh, uber sports agent of the, of the time when, when that movie was made. Um, do you know what in real life super agent Lee Steinberg is? Divorced. <laughs> That's right and bankrupt, and struggling with alcohol. Um, he's several years into recovery. See, Jesus commands us to love. And we think we understand what that means. We watch that and goes, yeah, go, yes, that's what I want. I want love so I understand what Jesus' command is. I know what it looks like and feels like. We dream of it, right? I mean... You know, from the time we're, we're, grow, we're, we're little kids growing up, we're kind of taught that love looks a certain way. It, it follows a certain pattern. If you were a little girl, it's likely you had one of these, right? I'm put the floor down here. No, it's not going down, but that's all right. Oh, there we go. The Barbie dream house. And then we had Ken and Barbie. Now, these are a little mattered from use, but I remember when Courtney was my oldest and John was 16 or 18 months behind her, and Courtney would always go, can we come play Barbies? 
a guy would go, if I can be G.I. Joe, that was called John Guy, and that was always the thing. But, you know, we're, we're brought up with this concept of love, and this is what it's going to look like, and these two are going to love each other, and we're going to occupy this house and build this life. Ken meets Barbie. Barbie marries Ken. They live happily ever after in a plastic wonderland. They buy themselves a dream van and, you know, all the rest. The only thing is, this dream house is often built on, anybody remember what this is? The files that contain all of my past, you know, all of the things that, that the cabinet, that, the record of my rights and wrongs, all the things people have said to me and done to me, all the junk I inherited from my mom and my dad, all the stuff that I thought was normal that turns out it wasn't normal. And so inevitably, we have this concept of what love is, but it's built on pretty shaky ground. It's built on pretty shaky ground. And so welcome to the final week of Love Does. I wish we could go and do this series for a year. I think we're seven weeks into it or so. This is, I, you know, I, I should have the elders hold me to this. I think we have to circle back to this so regularly. It's so foundational. This is everything. There's nothing more important that I'm ever going to teach you up here. I'm going to say that again. There is nothing more important than I am ever going to teach you up here. Not just about life and love, but about Jesus and what he called the gospel, and why he came, for what purpose. And so before we conclude with what love does, I want to just go backwards one more time so we can go forward. About 2,000 years ago, Jesus is born in a city called Bethlehem. And now, it's important you understand that his birth, and his life, and his death, and his resurrection are the most historically provable and documented events of their time. You have to get this because otherwise it starts, you start to think some of this is just like um, religious fairy tale, but that is not true. The biblical accounts of Jesus' life are not mere stories. They are documented facts. And Jesus shows up, this real-life person shows up, and he declares what is known as his gospel, which means he says, I'm here to share with you good news. Now, we know, we talk about the gospel of Jesus, but I'm not sure we really understand, like they did then, what this good news was that he came declaring. Here was Jesus' good news. His good news was the kingdom of God, which was once far and over there, has now come here and is available to you to live in and experience right now. Eternal life does not begin for you once you die. As believers, eternal life begins for you, is born in you the minute you believe. And he says, here's the good news. I've come to establish a new covenant with you, a new promise. I'm starting something new. There was an old promise between God and man. I'm going to start a new promise between God and man. Now, when Jesus is born, the nation of Israel, those are his people, right? They had been living under what was known as the old promise, the old covenant, the old way that God related to his people. If, you, if you're familiar with the Bible at all, you know the kind of two-thirds of the beginning of it is called the Old Testament. And that's kind of ruled, the Old Testament is ruled by the old covenant, the older promise of God that had been in place at Jesus when Jesus was born for generations. 
It was given to the patriarch of Israel, Moses. And it was that, that God was going, here's what the old covenant was. God is going to establish a relationship with people. And he's going to do it by first establishing a nation called Israel. And God would bless that nation. And then they would be a blessing. Now this covenant, this promise between God and Israel was conditional. It was essentially, Israel, if you obey my laws and my commands, you will be blessed. And if you do not obey my laws and commands, if you choose your own way, your own path, well then you won't be. You'll be out operating outside of my blessing. And so here's how the old covenant worked between, between a nation and God. If you do, I will. If you don't, I won't. Now, see, here's the problem. We tend to take that old covenant methodology and we sprinkle Jesus on it. But we still keep acting it out in all kinds of areas of our life, especially we think that that's how God interacts with us. God does not interact with us that way anymore. Now, at the heart of the old covenant was the temple system where sacred men in sacred places with really nice robes, they kept behind closed walls, sacred texts full of laws and commands that people were to keep. And to stay right with God, you had to do two things. The first thing you had to do in the old covenant model was you had to be a good person. As measured by how well you kept all of these laws. That's how you stayed right with God. You kept, at first it was the big ten commandments. But then over time they they added on and added on. It was over 600 of them. And the second way you stayed right with God was you would make yourself right, understanding that you must have broken one of those 600 plus commands. So, so there was a complex temple system of sacrifices, symbolically sacrifices of animals, atoning for a covering, at least until the next ceremonial sacrificial ceremony, your transgressions. This goes on for centuries. Jesus shows up. And he goes, I have good news for you. That's over. That's done. God is no longer relating to you under a conditional promise. And you no longer have to worry about if you've done enough or if you've covered your sins enough. Jesus says, I'm going to establish and put something brand new in place that is not like the old. In fact, the scriptures say it's, it's not only not like it, it's better. It's superior. He said, the old isn't going away. It's just that I'm fulfilling it for you. And so Jesus serves as the once-for-all sacrifice for all of the sins of all of the whole world. This new covenant, this new promise, teaches that the laws weren't actually there. This is kind of crazy, okay? The laws, God had given the laws not believing you'd be able to follow them. They were not given so that you could be good enough to earn your way to heaven. The laws were actually there to show you that you couldn't be good enough. Thus, you are going to need some saving. And a Savior entered Jesus and a new way to God. And so Jesus gathers on that famed Last Supper evening, and he holds up a glass of wine and he says, this wine represents my blood, which is going to symbolize for you a new covenant. I will fulfill on your behalf all of the old laws. I'll take care of it. I'll make you righteous. I will be the one sacrifice for all. The old, te- the old covenant is now fulfilled and done away with. And you will be made right before God, not by your works, but by faith in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. 
He says, if you would, if you would put, put your faith in me and repent, which is a fancy, fancy religious word, which just means change your mind, change the direction, the path you're going, change what it is you believe. If you would repent and follow, here's what will happen. God has now, in the old covenant, God dwelt in the temple. In the new covenant, God now dwells in the hearts of his people. And he says, as a result, God is no longer there. He's, he's in you and with you, and he is going to empower you to, to obey the one commandment that underlies the new covenant. 600 plus gone, fulfilled, one new one. You can't do it on your own, but I've left the building, and I will help you do it. Do you know what the new command was? This is what he said at dinner that night. A new command I'm giving you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. That is the singular great command of this new gospel, of this good news. The good news is the promise of God is no longer conditional. If you will, I will. If you won't, I won't. It is, I have satisfied all the laws for you. I love you. Now love Jesus goes on by this. Now, if I just stopped there, if I went to somebody on the street and said, you know, how, 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 how do you know a Christian? I mean, a lot of us think, especially when we get caught up in the church, well, it's by how good we keep the commands, how good a person we are, how nice a person we are, how blessed we appear to be, how much scripture we have memorized, how many scriptures we have on walls. Somebody this morning was showing me their crocheted blanket of, the, of, uh, of scripture, how many bumper stickers we have, how many tattoos we have, how much money we give to the church, how many mission trips we go on. Jesus says, yeah, that, that's all well and good. In fact, later on, he would go, it's actually worthless if you don't do this one thing if you don't love. He goes, no, this is how people will know that you're my follower. Everyone will know you're my disciple if you love one another. The new covenant is not about keeping the laws and being a good person. It is about grace, which means unmerited favor. It means I did nothing to deserve my standing before God. Jesus did. Grace was, guys, and still is, dangerous and unsettling. In fact, it's threatening to the religious leaders in the temple system. And it's even threatening for some of us that are trying to be good. They and we have lots to lose in some sense if grace wins out. And so now the temple and religious bigwigs of the day, they're always trying to trick Jesus up because if grace wins and the temple model goes away and God lives with his people, well, then they're out of work. And so on a couple of different occasions, conversations went down that went like this. A religious leader comes up to Jesus to try to trip him up and goes, Teacher, what's the greatest commandment in the law? Tell me the law. And Jesus goes, love. Love the Lord your God with all of your hearts and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, is like it in importance, is equal to it in value. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then to make sure that the religious leader got it, he says, let me explain to you. All of the law and the prophets, all of the things that you're protecting, all of it hang on these two commandments. Do these, all of the other stuff falls into place. Now, I know this is crazy because you weren't taught this growing up a lot because even our moms and dads like to make sure that we follow the rules, right? And that, we, that there are punishments in place. And I love you if you do, and I mad at you if you don't. And so this is hard, right? 
If you think I'm overstating it, though, the Apostle Paul, who himself was a leader in the temple system, he says, I was the best law keeper in all of Israel. I was the most righteous guy there was. He goes, but now I've come to understand all the things that I did that I thought were gain for me were really garbage. They're worthless. In fact, he comes to, 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 to a statement which is really quite crazy. He says, the only thing that counts, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. That's it. It seems fairly simple. The only thing that counts is love. Now, here's the key. It's not the Jerry Maguire, oh, I love you kind of love. It's not romantic or physical or erotic or brotherly. This is not what Jesus is talking about. We get it confused because we think we understand what love is and what Jesus commands is something quite different. Jesus commands a kind of love that in the Greek was the word agape. This is a charitable, self-sacrificing, self-denying, other-seeking, and often non-returning kind of love. This is not the kind of love that you feel. It's not the kind of love you fall in and out of. It's not the kind of love that grows apart over time. This is the kind of love that you do. It's the, it's the kind of love that is a verb. It is an action. And i got to be honest with you, it often, if you get it, it often, to our, our humanness, doesn't feel all that good. It's not like the kind of love we romanticize or we put in the movies. It's not the kind of love that just comes to your mind the first time you read what Jesus is commanding to you to do. This kind of love is unnatural. It doesn't sometimes seem right or fair. And I'll, I'll go further. What Jesus is commanding you and I to do, this way of loving, is actually impossible. You can't do it. Unless God has left the building and dwells in your heart and soul. Because if he does, then you can. So I think, if you've been trying maybe like I have, along these few weeks to love like this, what you've probably learned that is in our natural state, it's hard. So week after week now, I've enrolled you in Dr. Eisman's class, Loveology 101, How to Be a Better Lover This Sunday at Mendham Hills. Because if that's all that counts, I mean, I spent my whole religious life trying to be a good person, but now you're telling me that is worthless, if all that counts is how I love, then we should probably be working on it. And so we began working on it. Week one, right, we learned that what underlies this kind of agape love is the concept of mutual submission. I lay down my hopes, my dreams, my plans for the future. I'm willing to lay them down so that yours might, might win. That your future plans and dreams and hopes might live. Because we're supposed to love like Jesus loved, and Jesus lays down his life willingly so that we might live, and then says, now you go and do the same. Is that natural? Because it ain't easy. Because I got plans, and sometimes you stand in the way. See, the church of Jesus, I mean, even, especially just in here, right? It, every relationship in here should just be like this mutual submission fest. Like, you should see each other out there as you're waiting in line at the cafe. No, you go before me. No, you go before me. Not only should you go before me, I'll treat you. What would you like? No, what would you like? Right? Like, this is what it would look like. You'd start to get a sense. Man, these people. You know, I think he might be a Christian. Oh, he's got a bumper sticker? No. Did you see how he loved? 
Then the last couple weeks, and trying to learn how to be a better lover, Loveology 201 and 301, we've looked at Paul's great treatise on agape in 1 Corinthians 13. Now remember, this is a guy that was once the best keeper of the law in all of Israel, and he thought it was to his gain. Here's what he came to discover, and he's talking about himself. He goes, if I speak in the tongues of men or angels, but I don't have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and I can fathom all the mysteries, I have all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor, I give my body over to hardship that I could boast, but I don't have love, I've gained nothing. It's all, you know what, that's a fancy way of saying. Paul's like, look, the only thing that counts, let me just kind of sum it up, is faith expressing itself through love. It's all that matters. Thus, as a people of God, or a people interested in the things of God, or a people wondering about God, and this just clears up Christianity so much, right? Shouldn't we as a people worry a lot more about if we've loved enough and worry a little bit less about if we've been good enough? And so Paul goes on. He goes, let me explain what I'm talking about. Let me explain what agape is. He goes, agape love is patient. Well, that's not normal. It's kind. Well, that's not normal. It doesn't envy. It doesn't envy you. He goes on. It doesn't boast. It's not proud. It doesn't dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. And then he, we looked at this a couple weeks ago. It keeps no record of wrongs. Does anybody remember what this baby is right here? It's my record of wrongs. Remember, this is Joan's file cabinet right here. This is my kid's filing cabinet right here. Anybody remember whose this is? That's right, yours. I've got all your emails. They're tucked right in there, right? And then this one down here, this one is just all the stuff that, like, I've piled up about myself along the way. All the things people have done and said that hurt or left a mark or got me thinking about myself in certain ways. Love keeps no record of wrongs, but I do. And what we learned is that when I keep these files of wrongs, they create filters in my mind, and we run all of our experiences through them. And when I run my experiences, when I run what you're saying or doing through that pile of experiences, it ultimately keeps me from loving, at least the way that Jesus loves. Because remember, the good news of this gospel, this new covenant, is not only that Jesus forgives your sin, but he forgets your sins. And that's what really, that's what really restores the relationship. It's not like he's begrudgingly going, well, I guess I'm going to have to let this go because Jesus died. He doesn't see him anymore. When he looks at you, he doesn't run, well, you know, I remember, remember that time, remember that night in college? I mean, I, I forgive it, but I can't get past it. That's not the way he, he loves you. Paul goes on, he goes, look, love doesn't delight in evil. It rejoices in truth. It always, we looked at this last week, it always protects and trusts and hopes and perseveres. I mean, we talked about that, right? Love always trusts. What does that look like? And we discovered last week that there's so much power in loving like that. In fact, if you go back and and listen to last week, right, we, we looked at the research that shows that that principle of always trusting, always believing, always hoping... That is the, no, the only singular principle sociologists have studied. It is the reason behind every marriage that makes it. Trust and belief in the most generous explanation for others and their wrongs. And so today, here's where we are. We conclude with this. Paul starts wrapping it up. He goes, you know, 
Love, it never fails. Then he explains. He goes, look, where there's prophecies, they're going to cease. Where there's tongues, they're going to be stilled. Where there's knowledge, that'll pass away. Because now we know in part, we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. And Paul's going back to his opening lines, right? And he's going, look, love is the only thing that lasts. Prophecy doesn't last. Spiritual gifts, wisdom. He says when completeness comes, what he means is when Jesus comes and establishes his kingdom here on earth, Nobody is going to need to prophesy about Jesus in the kingdom to come. You know why? Because he's going to be standing right there. And then he says, in the kingdom to come, you're not going to need spiritual gifts. You're not going to need tongues and healing because the healer will be right there. Knowledge, knowledge will have its completeness right there in God. Right now, we're just trying to, you know, we understand a little, but then we'll know in whole. Paul says there is only one thing. This is so cool. There is only one thing that will carry over. There is only one remnant of this kingdom in the kingdom to come. There is only one transcendent commandment. There is only one virtue that counts. Love. That's what allows Jesus to stand up and say, the kingdom of God starts now. It starts with love. And it starts with love doing this completely unnatural, inhuman, more than human choice to agape one another. It's all that matters. And he concludes with a big thought. Here's what he says. I think he says it to you and I. I and it's almost kind of, I mean, I can see him kind of being frustrated, right? Remember, he's talking to these people in Corinth and they're suing each other and dragging each other into court and doing all kinds of stuff to each other. And he says, look, you've got to grow up you got to grow up in the way your understanding of love is. He, sa he says, look, when I was a child, I talked like a child, and I thought like a child, and I reasoned like a child, but when I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. Now, Google this, guys. You'll find lots of sermons on it, because the church over the years has used it for lots of things to try to get people to conform and behave. It's probably been used more than any other thing to get people to follow Old Covenant laws and rules. But that's not what Paul's talking about. His point is that you and I tend to have a childish understanding about love. Oh, you know, where's pull the dream van around front and get Ragsy the dog, or, you know. But he's going, that, this isn't it. This is a sham. It's a fallacy. You've got to grow up. That's not the kind of love I'm talking about. He says, when I was a child, I talked about love like a child. When I was a child, I thought about love like a child. I understood it immaturely. And when I was a child, I reasoned about love like a child. He says, like, you know, when I, I, when I spoke about love, I, I didn't know what I was talking about. I, I spoke about stupid things. You know what? One of the first things a child learns growing up, right, are things you should say and things you shouldn't say. And the next thing... The next time you learn that is when you're a husband. You learn there are certain things you should say, and there are certain things that you shouldn't say. 
things that you say in your head and you don't let out loud. Anybody remember the first time uh, you cursed in front of your parents? I remember mine very vividly. Um, I was uh, bounding down the stairs. I had some friends at the bottom of the stairs. I'd asked my mom if I could go somewhere with them. She said yes. Here I came, trucking down the stairs, and it was an overhang when you got to the lower stairs, and I now had just grown up enough. Like, you know, I must have grown an inch since I went by it the last time, and I bound in, and that thing caught me right in the head, and down I went, and out came a word. Ooh. And I remember thinking to myself, <laughs> like, where, number one, where did that come from? And number two, Man, I am dead. Like, I'm dead. I shouldn't say those things because my parents told me not to. I mean, I remember, you know, I remember trying to teach my kids not to curse. Well, you see, you ever, okay, you're trying to raise kids and teach them not to curse, and then you take them to a professional sporting event, (laughs) right? And you just sit there, and you're like... (sighs) And I'm trying to remember the first time I'm trying, I mean, these kids are just hearing words, and I'm going... So I'm trying to figure out how to teach them, like, don't do that. And so uh, I started going, every time somebody would say something, I, I'm not proud of this, and this isn't the right way to go about it, right? But, you know, somebody would say something, and I'd, be, I'd lean over to one of them and go, I think you went to Harvard. Do you think you went to Harvard or Princeton? You know, because they talk like that all the time. Like in, in, you know, and just kind of like trying to get them to understand it's not cool to curse. But then if I did hear them curse, what did I do? I did the old trick that my mom and I, my mom had taught me, but except it's a lot easier when you can just pump the soap out now. And, you know, I, so they broke the command and there was payment for the command and dad said, don't curse and you cursed. And now there was a law there and dad's going to punish you. And, and I think that you and I, you know, we're, we're, we're mostly grown up in this room and you know, we still relate to God with cursing this way. Do you really think God has a book up in heaven that's got certain letters in a row and goes, if you do that, you say that, then I'm going to do this. See, we relate to God like a child relates to God. We don't curse because God said not to, and then we'll get, he might do something to us if we do. That's not it. That's, that's speaking like a child. And, and here's what Jesus said about it. Because remember, the laws are no longer going to be in a sacred place. They're going to be written on our heart. Jesus goes, for the mouth speaks what the heart's full of. One translation says, what comes out of your mouth proceeds from your heart, and it's the heart that defiles a person. It's a heart issue, not a word issue. Language, the way we speak to one another, flows out of our hearts. When I was a child, I didn't speak badly because it was the law. I was told not to curse or curse or gossip. I knew it was a sin. Grown-up thinking is that I need to stop worrying about what's coming out of my mouth, and i got to start worrying about what's going on in my heart, because if I get that change, what comes out of my mouth will be different. It's not the words that are the issue. It's not the stringing together of certain vowels and consonants that are the problem. It's the heart from which they spring. Paul says, when it comes to loving people, I need to have God dwell in me, change me, live within me, and that will change what I say to and about people. Listen, agape, big principle, crazy principle that it's this big, but it is. Paul only gives three things here, but one of them is this. When it comes to agape, words matter. What we say to one another and about one another matters. Husbands, what you say to your wife matters. 
You know what matters even more? What you say about your wife to your kids or your friends, it matters. Words have this incredible power to deploy or destroy love. And it's not just a marriage issue. What you say to your kids, about your kids, in front of your kids, it matters. What you say at your office, by the water cooler, about your boss, words matter. Words reveal the heart. Rumor, gossip, it all undermines. Paul says, with love, as your heart changes, your mouth changes. He says, when I was a child, I thought like a child. I didn't just speak like a child, but I actually thought like a child. I thought that love looked like this. I thought about love the way I think about the Barbie dream house. I'll love you, and when I feel loved by you, because I feel loved by you, I'll love you back. Paul goes, this is, this is what a child thinks. That's not agape. Love doesn't work or think this way. In agape, in real love... Do you know what love does with its natural thoughts? Because remember now, agape is not natural. It's not going to be the first thing that springs to mind. Do you know what you do with your thoughts? Here's what Paul said. Take every one of them captive and make them obedient to Christ. Well, Christ has one law. And if you're going to be obedient to it, what is this th- thought? What do you have to do with your thoughts? You have to make them obedient to love. I need to take what I'm thinking, change the way I'm thinking, capture it, and make it obedient to love. When I was a child, I thought like a child. I thought about love like a child. And you know what I would do? I would give voice to what I thought. I would talk out the thoughts. For some reason... Let's start, my, my beautiful wife is serving upstairs in children's ministry today, so we'll just talk honestly here. For some reason, I believed I, 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 in my marriage, right, like whatever it is I was thinking should be aired. That was a grievous error. Because I thought that Joan deserved, I mean, isn't love just telling you what I think? No, it's not. That is, listen to me. That is not love. Just telling you everything I'm thinking. Most of my thoughts are are coming out of my brokenness, out of my natural behavior. Here's what what Joan and I, I joke because we talk about this all the time. We have learned so much about this in the last maybe eight years of our marriage. What we have learned is, and, and listen, I am not merely the jerk I used to be either in other relationships. Because here's the thing, it's actually fairly easy. Just take every thought captive and run it through a new filter of what would love say here. How does love change this thought? Right, like, you know, so when when I want to communicate, I have a thought and it relates to my wife. Before I say anything to my wife, I take it captive and think through, how am I going to express this in a way that is love? I know what her, I know Joan, you know, she's got one of these too. I take up three drawers in hers. And so I know what I've done to that girl. I know what the world has done to that girl. She's the, she was the middle child in a, in a little bit of a dysfunctional family, and then she married a dysfunctional guy, and 
you know, and so the world has given all kinds of files and past hurts. And, and so what I say, the thought I say, when I, when I don't just tell her. Now the first thing I think to myself is, you know, A, do I even need to say that? And B, if I'm going to say it, I am going to communicate this in a way that is so loving, right? Like it's just I'm going to think about how this is going to come through her filter because I love her. It's not just your wife, it's your kids, right? I've got four kids. Each of them's a little different. You gotta think through how you communicate, what your thoughts are, take captive every thought, and before you just spew it out, right? I've got two sons. What if, the, what if I always compare my younger son to my older son? Right? Like, you don't do that. You take that thought captive. I don't go, hey, Caleb, you know, John doesn't do it that way. And you have to think all through all kinds of stuff. Uh, Courtney, God bless her, she, uh, she's got this little thing where she constantly tells all the kids, you know, I'm dad's favorite. Um, <laughs> she tells them that all the time. And so this is actually a little thing in our house. Well, Court's dad's favorite, which is not true. Um, <laughs> but when I have a thought, when I go to express it, I always think to myself, one of the files and filters that exist in this family is that Court's dad's favorite. So when I express this, I'm going to think through everybody's file and filter, and I'm going to express it in a way that is loving and doesn't go the other way. This, you can take this concept, you do it at work, you do it with your boss, you do it with your friends. You, take, you don't just say what comes to you. This will keep you out of so much trouble. I'm just telling you. Those of you with no friends, this could be a very, this could be, this could be an issue. Right? Um, take every thought captive and make it loving. Finally, Paul says this. He says, look, you need to grow up in the way you reason. You've got to put childish reasoning behind. Now, I want to explain this relative to this new covenant, and then we'll be done. And I won't talk about love until maybe next week again. But... This is the end, right? And Paul says you need to change the way, put the ways of childish reasoning behind you. And it's a new covenant issue because this is how God relates to you. And he wants us to relate to others this way. Now, I inherited some of my best parenting lines from my mom and dad. When my kids were, were, were young, they had lots of rules, things that they were supposed to do and things they weren't supposed to do. And every once in a while, they would come to me with a profound question. They'd say, why can't I do this? And do you know what my answer was? Because I said so. I learned that from my dad. And it works really well when they're young. And doesn't work all that well when they're old. When they grew up. And see, we tend to relate to God like, well, we just do, don't do it because God said so. And that's good. And I mean, it sounds all religious and holy. And I think there's something to it. I mean, there's reverence for God there. But that's not what really love looks like. We don't serve God out of obligation or duty. Paul put it this way about serving God. He said, we've been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the spirit, not in the old way of the written code. Remember, now part of the new covenant was that God's laws are no longer going to be on sacred tablets and temples. They're going to be written on your heart. There is now a relationship between you and God. You don't just do it because God said to do it. You do it out of relationship, connection, love for the Father. Paul wrote this. He said, thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you've come to obey from your heart. You've come to obey God from your heart. The pattern of teaching, that's now claimed your allegiance. That 
is love. Now, some of you, here's where it gets hard, because some of us, we've all related uh, where we stand with God based on how good a person we are. If I, if I feel like I'm doing well, I feel like I'm in a good place with God. And if I, you know, watch something I didn't or went somewhere I shouldn't, then I feel like I'm in a bad place with God. So, John, if you're saying that now I relate to God no longer by the law but by my heart, how do I know where I stand with God? Well, here's what John wrote. This is how we know. This is how we know This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He's given us of his spirit. And we see and testify that the father sent his son to be the savior. And if anybody acknowledges Jesus is the son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know, and here's the key, we know the love of God and we rely on the love of God. We rely on the love that God has for us. We don't rely on being a good person. We don't rely on keeping all of the rules. The only thing that you and I have to rely on is the love of God, and that's it. We rely on the love of God. Paul goes on, he says, God is agape. This is who he is. Whoever lives in love lives in God, and God is in them. This is how love is made complete amongst us, so that we'll have confidence on the day of judgment. When you are taking your last breath one day, when you get the bad diagnosis and you show up in my office, please don't come in and go, I just don't know if I've been good enough. That is not the question. This is how you can have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. We love like he loved. Paul goes, or, uh, um, John goes, because there is no fear in love. You do not need to be afraid on the day of judgment. You rely on the love of God. Paul says, or, or John goes, perfect love, it drives out fear. Fear has to do with punishment. That's why I used to not curse, right? Because I didn't want to get, get spanked. That's not love. The one who fears isn't made perfect in love. If you are afraid, you have not truly understood the love that God has for you. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. Perfect love casts out fear. Back to what Paul said. Look, when I was a child, I reasoned like a child. I reasoned about love like a child. I used to think as a child I obeyed because I was told to obey. I used to think God's love for me was based on my performance. That's how I reasoned. That's how I grew up. I used to think that way about love, too. I used to think that if I was a good husband or a good dad or a good employee, I was due love. And if I messed up, well, then love would be withheld. I do that still. Joan says something mean, I don't talk to her. <laughs> right? It's quite natural. It comes easy. So I loved, think about this. Now, follow me, because this is so fascinating. I thought about love like a child. I loved in order to get love back, and I gave love back if and only I felt loved. That was my reasoning, my thinking. If I'm good, I'll be loved, and if I'm not good, I won't. That's how I thought God loved me, and that's how I began to love other people. God wants me to perform for his love, so guess what? You should perform for mine. You want me to love you better, you better make sure I feel loved by you. If you love, I'll love. If you don't love, I don't. If you do, I will. If you don't, I won't. Does this sound familiar? 
This is old covenant thinking. We took the singular great command of the new covenant and wrapped it up in old covenant thinking. That's how a child thinks about love. And when you love that way, do you know what it does? It creates fear. If my wife or my kids think my love for them is contingent on how they perform for me, that's not love. If my wife worries that if she puts on a couple of pounds, you know, John might not love me anymore. John might be looking for another woman. That's not love. She's not being made perfect by my love. She's being made fearful. If my kids think they have to perform in school or get certain grades or be something on an athletic field in order to make dad proud, in order for dad to love them, they have not been made perfect in the love of their father. They've just been made afraid. That's not love. In fact, if anyone thinks that my love for them is contingent on their love for me or their performance for me, or they have, if they think that my love for them only goes if they vote the way I vote or if they think politically the way I think, then I blew it. Because that's not love. I have not loved like Jesus. He loved me simply because he chose to. And I rely on it because I have nothing else. His love for me is not going anywhere. His love for me is not capricious or fickle or contingent on anything. And neither should ours be. That's love. Paul says, this is not love. You got to grow up. Do not reason about love like you're a child. This isn't Barbie's kingdom. It's Jesus's. And it's a new covenant and a new promise. You can rely on the love of God and now go and be like Jesus in this world. And so I'm going to close with this great question. Is there anyone in your orbit, your world, your home, your work, is there anybody that knows they can rely on your love? No matter what. No matter what. No matter what they say, how they vote, we could go through the line of things that separate us. Is there anybody in your world that knows it does not matter? You can rest assured, rely on my love. Ban, come up. Paul finishes off the great treatise this way. He goes, look, these three remain. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Why? Because one day you won't have, fit and have to have faith anymore. You'll be able to see. One day you won't have to have hope anymore. You'll be living it out. The only value that transcends kingdoms, that bridges kingdoms, is love. The kingdom of God breaks out in your heart and in your home and in your office and in our church and in Chester and Mendham and Long Valley. When we grow up, start looking at your Facebook feeds today and start saying to yourself, we need to grow up. We need to grow up. The kingdom starts its only value, its only law, the only thing that lasts or matters. It's the only thing that counts. Love wins. 